Mrs. Malkin, Professor Bellinger, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be back in Charlottesville, a delight to be at RBS again, and I count it a singular honor to be asked to contribute to this series of lectures, which keeps bringing the memory of that great bookman, Sol Malkin, whom I'm very glad to have known. Now, the year is 1954. It's summer, and we are on a book-buying trip in the south of England. It is raining. As we start to drive into the busy city of Portsmouth, we see a medium-sized bookshop at the side of the main road. We pull over, we park the car, and glance up at the name over the door. It is Mulder. Somewhat concerned lest the name is suggestive of the condition of the books within, we push open the door. It is true that a slight smell of damp is present. But what meets our eye is a large array of neatly ordered books. We see yard after yard of calf. We see shelves of three-decker novels. Elderly assistants wearing long, gray alpaca coats scurry up and down ladders, checking the stock against inquiries uh, as they go. We set to work. An hour or so later, we're ready to leave. We've carefully worked through the ground floor shop and the maze of rooms above it. We have not made the great discovery that would have made us rich at a stroke, but we have purchased enough good and useful books at fair, even moderate prices to fill a couple of cartons. And not too troubled now by the British weather, we load our purchases into the car and drive off well contented. In 1954, Moulders did exist, and it was not untypical of English provincial bookshops. It's no good looking for it today, for it is long gone, as have all too many of its erstwhile friendly competitors up and down the country, forced out by the high cost of operating from prime shopping sites. The premises once occupied by Moulder and his like are now the preserve of airline offices and clothing boutiques, which seem better able to pay market rents. The books that were once brought to booksellers by members of the public now go to auction, and the successors to Moulder's staff no longer operate from ground floor walk-in bookshops. Instead, they trade on their own from spare bedrooms of country cottages and from suburban apartments, as well as from the stands at book fairs around the country. Let me make it quite clear, it is not the number of dealers that has diminished, indeed it may have grown, but the good general second-hand bookshops. Now, the one-man specialist firms provide a very useful service. Their expertise and personal attention represent a great boon to the book-buying public but there are serious concomitant snags. 50, 40, or only 30 years ago, it was easy for a librarian visiting London, New York, or Tokyo to visit the bookselling district, be it Charing Cross Road, 4th Avenue, or Canda. The attractions of Canda remain. The others have virtually vanished. It is infinitely harder to make a tour of the one-man businesses, which are by their nature more, more widely spread. To visit them, one usually needs an appointment, something which immediately sets up a formal and constrained atmosphere. In such circumstances, there is not the freedom that a bookshop offers to roam the shelves and buy or not entirely as one pleases. What is happening is that we are losing the base of the book-selling pyramid, the street-level, open-access shops where both young dealers and young collectors can cut their teeth. Moreover, the booksellers without ground-floor shops miss out on the opportunities to buy from owners, not perhaps themselves collectors, who may have inherited unsuspected rarities. In short, to use an ecological metaphor, we are in danger of losing the feeding grounds and thus putting the survival of the species at risk.
I've just implied that one consequence of the loss of so many of the larger general, general second-hand and antiquarian bookshops is the reduction, certainly to single figures as far as Great Britain is concerned, the reduction in the number of establishments where the newcomer can acquire proper training. When I came into the trade in 1952, the men then at the top of the larger firms, for example, Ben Marks and Mark Cohen, the Marks and Co, I've always thought that a rather delightful pun, the Marks and Co of 84 Charing Cross Road fame. The directors of Francis Edwards and my own father had all served informal apprenticeships. Marks and Cohen, like many another, at Sotheran's, and my father with his uncles, Percy and Arthur Dobell. Beginning with the humblest tasks was no bad way to start. There was nothing like dusting the stock every morning to teach a young bookseller which titles moved quickly and which slowly, which books were common and which books were rare. And at the same time, they could learn almost by osmosis, not just about bibliographical points and about prices and values, but also about trade customs and what was virtually an unwritten code of practice. In the 1950s and 1960s, enlightened employers had begun the practice of reinforcing this informal learning process with such devices, simple devices, as lists of recommended reading. From time to time, the trade associations attempted to organize lecture courses, but their efforts were not particularly well rewarded. Later, rare book courses at library schools provided formal training for some who, at the end of the day, chose to become booksellers rather than librarians. Indeed, some of Professor Bellinger's students at Columbia went on to enter the book trade with notable success. Of course, Rare Book School itself has been enormously effective in improving the professional ability of booksellers as well as librarians. Nor should we overlook the work done by Solmalkin's successor at AB, Jake Chanofsky, who has presented no fewer than 16 annual seminars for book trade tyros and would-be improvers. AB's seminars are less specialized and less academic than Rare Book School's courses, but they are certainly intensive, as I discovered the hard way on the faculty in one of them earlier this year. In Great Britain, what one might call the demography of the training problem makes it difficult to offer the solutions that have been found in the United States. The numbers of potential candidates for such ventures as RBS and the AB seminars are far too small for such things to be economically or even educationally viable. However, there is one new and very encouraging development. The committee of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association, rightly concerned about the lack of training facilities, took a hard look at what might be done and came to realize that much of the knowledge that an antiquarian bookseller needed was already being taught as part, but only part, of courses for librarians. Might not a school of library science be able to adapt one of its courses so that student librarians and student booksellers could enjoy many of the same lectures and even benefit from the cross-fertilization of ideas that might ensue in formal and informal discussion? All that would be required then would be for the trade itself to provide instruction through the school in subjects specifically to do with dealing in books, such as auction law and practice, the economics of book selling, the building of a mailing list, and so on. Accordingly, the ABA approached the School of Library, Archive and Information Studies at University College London, and after many, many months of discussion, a syllabus was hammered out and a course offered. It is believed to be the world's first postgraduate course in antiquarian book selling. It occupies one year for full-time students, two years for part-time students. It allows for plenty of practical work, placements and so on. The first dozen students will attend the inaugural lecture in October of this year. This is a welcome initiative and I'm sure that all lovers of the book will wish it well. Now it's been said that you cannot learn book selling in a classroom. This may well be true, but I am quite sure 
that those who graduate from the diploma course will be better booksellers than they would have been without it. To collectors who have taken up book collecting and to dealers who have taken up book selling within the last 10 or 15 years, antiquarian book fairs must seem very much a part of the normal routine and of the everyday mechanism for the buying and selling books. In Great Britain there is a book fair of some kind in some town or city just about every week now. In one chaotic fortnight at the end of June this year, there were 13 separate fairs in London alone. Yet it was not always so. Although book fairs flourished in medieval times, it was the publishers of new books who revived them. Antiquarian booksellers beginning to organize their own fairs only as recently as 1957. In that year, a group of half a dozen or so provincial dealers in Great Britain banded together during the closed season for auction sales and rented one of Sotheby's galleries in New Bond Street. There they showed on simple shelving selections from their stocks. Their purpose was to give themselves a London shop window, as it were. Following the success of that venture, a group of younger members of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association, variously dubbed the Young Turks and the Ginger Group, argued long and hard with the committee and finally persuaded that body reluctantly to sponsor a book fair for ABA members in June of 1958. In the end, just 28 dealers were persuaded to take part. 19 of the 28 already had premises in London, so the notion of the fair existing as a London shop window had already gone out of the, out of the door. It should be said to the credit of the London dealers that some of them were present solely to support the association and to ensure that there were enough exhibitors to make the fair viable, or at least that was their claim. A list of exhibitors, just names, addresses and telephone numbers, not even a mention of specialities, was attractively printed as a four-page leaflet. This was a far cry from today's glossy, full-color catalogues weighing almost a kilogram. The introduction to the 1958 list deserves to be quoted in full, quite short. Exhibitions of rare and current books attract considerable interest and large attendance. Many people, however, are under the impression that all antiquarian books are expensive, and for this reason they never set foot in a rare bookshop where books of great beauty and interest can be seen and handled throughout the year. Instead, they restrict their pleasure to looking at the small selections which can be seen locked away in glass cases and from time to time in such, ex such exhibitions are held at the National Book League. The purpose of this fair is to show that it is not necessary to be rich in order to be a book collector. At the same time, there are many superb books and manuscripts on show to tempt the wealthy collector and delight all visitors. To underline the point that good books could be bought inexpensively, the 1958 fair and several that followed it had a special cooperative stand containing books priced at five pounds or less. The 1958 fair was scheduled to run for 16 long days. At least they seemed long to the weary exhibitors, most particularly since almost all the business was done in the first 24 or 48 hours. Saturdays were a little brighter, and indeed the 16 days had been selected in such a way that they included three weekends. Some ironists among the exhibitors likened this to the three Sundays which in England traditionally had to elapse between the passing of a death sentence and an execution. The dealers learned something from their ordeal, and in 1959 the duration of the fair was reduced to 12 days. To bring it down to the three that are customary now took another 11 years. The number of exhibitors grew slowly year by year until 1971 when a fair designed to follow a congress of the International League of Antiquarian Booksellers attracted 90 dealers. This was the first truly international antiquarian book fair to be held in London, although some overseas dealers had been present each year from 1962 onwards. Another ILAB congress in 1984, 13 years later, saw 143 exhibitors from Great Britain, continental Europe, North America, Israel, South Africa, and Japan. 
Thereafter, the number of standholders settled down at around 125, with approximately 25% of the space reserved for dealers from overseas. Incidentally, on the advice of a public relations firm, the 1984 fair was called the Book Collector's Fair, a term that was thought to be more attractive and uh, user-friendly than antiquarian book fair. Sales at the ABA's annual London fairs moved up in line with changing money values and the larger number of exhibitors, and have in recent years passed the £1 million mark with ease. Book fairs are now big business. Their success and popularity is confirmed by their spread. The ABA itself offers periodic fairs in the provinces and in Scotland. These are not necessarily quite such grand occasions as the June Fair in London, but the standards of expertise and integrity are backed by the full weight of the association. Other organisations also run book fairs in Great Britain. The most successful of them, the Provincial Book Fairs, sorry, the Provincial Booksellers Fairs Association, that sounds quite right, PBFA, right, having, as its name implies, been set up specially for the purpose. A few of these latter fairs aspire to the quality of books and manuscripts glass showcases, lavish catalogues, and expensive public publicity machines of the principal ABA fairs. To exhibit at them is cheap and relatively easy. That they fill a need is very clear, that their popularity raises certain questions. Certainly there are those, both booksellers and customers, who think there are now too many fairs. Certainly it has been remarked with justification that at some of the fairs lower down the scale, the same books appear on the same dealer's stands week in and week out in different towns across the country. Certainly the fairs with the highest costs no longer have the long waiting lists of would-be exhibitors that they boasted five or ten years ago. Are these straws in the wind, one wonders? If book fairs are going to be with us for some time to come, are they a good thing? Well, that's a question which doesn't allow a simple one-word answer. Fairs present dealers with a good opportunity to meet, in a relatively short space of time, a number of customers who might live far away. Similarly, book buyers have a chance to see a wide range of books and to meet many booksellers under one roof. All those taking part in an important fair can get an impression of the market, of trends in collecting interest and in prices. Fairs provide a useful occasion for the trade to attract publicity for rare books and for book collecting. They enable the dealers to demonstrate that it's not only at auction that books and manuscripts can command excellent prices. New dealers can obtain more exposure to customers at a fair than they could otherwise achieve in a month of Sundays. All these are good, positive factors. What is the other side of the coin? The busy hours at the beginning of a fair do not allow dealer and customer time to talk and exchange views in the way that most would prefer. A dealer might see 10 or 20 of his most important customers in one day at a fair, but he will probably not have time to say much more than good morning to any of them. For the customer, it is scarcely possible to make a considered, unhurried purchase at a fair. In the dealer's shop, there is all the time in the world to examine a book, to weigh up its merits, and to reflect on the chances of finding a better copy, or a cheaper one, before deciding whether to buy or not. In contrast, the motto of the fair has to be, he who hesitates is lost. A moment's reflection can allow the book question to be bought by a new arrival crowding into the dealer's booth. Then there is suspicion, sometimes well-grounded I fear, that some dealers increase their prices, especially for a fair. At some fairs it is said that the exhibitors buy all the best books from one another before the public are let in. This practice is officially discouraged by the International League of Antiquarian Booksellers, which have a guideline for the conduct of same, saying, all exhibits must be for immediate sale, and in the interests of good public relations, no material, um, in, no material on exhibition may be reserved or sold 
prior to the formal opening of the fair. Well, that's fine and dandy. That's a principle I support. But I've tried policing it at some fairs, and believe me, it's hard work. Some dealers complain that in the hurly-burly of the opening day, books are carelessly handled. One American bookseller has made no secret of taking to fairs only books of which he had better copies in his shop. Other booksellers find at the conclusion of a fair that they have made most of their sales to existing customers, thus having incurred the trouble and expense of exhibiting to no real purpose. In preparing his 1974 paper, The World of Rare Books Re-examined, Gordon Ray sent a questionnaire to collectors, librarians and dealers, attitudes to fairs being one of the subjects of inquiry. Some of the responses are among those given above. Others, which Professor Ray quotes verbatim, repay study by those seriously interested in the future of fairs. One aspect which none of Professor Ray's respondents appears to have addressed is the effect that the proliferation of fairs might have on the long-term future of the book trade itself. There is no room for doubt that the existence of fairs makes it far easier for newcomers to enter the trade. At the lower end of the range, all it takes is the price of a trestle table, a few dollars for entrance money, and a stock of 30 or 40 books. Customers are provided by the organizers. There is no need for the capital to rent or buy shop premises and to stock many hundreds of feet of shelving. Because there is therefore no need to spend a number of years accumulating the necessary funds, and because the investment at risk is so small, there is less incentive for young entrants to book selling to serve some form of apprenticeship, serving, learning their trade from an established dealer. Instead, they plunge in at the deep end and learn at the expense of the customer. George Goodspeed, the long the doyen of East Coast booksellers, has gone on record as being very worried about this and about what he sees as the unfair competition from those who do not have to support the overheads of shop premises. Now, naturally, there is a temptation to view that as special pleading. But if his dire predictions are right, and if ground floor, city center, walk-in bookshops should be forced to close because of competition, just or unjust, from the new generation of dealers who conduct business only at fairs, then that would surely be a, a sad blow to the world of books. Whatever the future of book fairs may be, and however far the book trade goes or does not go in the direction of electronic matching of stocks and customers' wants, catalogues must surely remain one of the most important sales tools of the antiquarian book trade. Although I have no statistics to prove it, I am quite sure that more catalogues are published by more dealers today than at any time in the trade's history. Certainly that view is supported by the number of catalogues that arrive on my desk day by day. I would moreover suggest that the increase in numbers has been pretty much a straight line appreciation throughout the half century we are considering. None of this is surprising if one sees it as a consequence of the retreat from the high street. The new breed of one-man specialist dealer has need of the catalogue in order to reach out to potential purchasers. Again, I've undertaken no research to prove the point, but I'm sure that the standard of scholarship in catalogues has also risen and continues to rise. The new generation of dealers seems to make good use of the flood of bibliographies published in recent times. Indeed, if anything, they make too much use of them, giving bibliographical citations of commonplace and straightforward books which present no bibliographical problems, either to buyer or to seller, and which need no reference number to identify them. It is something of a cliché to say that booksellers' catalogues make good reading. This was true even when they did little more than give the bald details of author, title, imprint, condition and price. How much more so when a careful assemblage of books on one specialised subject is presented with scholarly footnotes which advance the reader's knowledge. Let me give two examples. One is the fine series of catalogues devoted to books about architecture, issued by Mr. Ben Weinreb. These are models of what such things should, should be, make me proud of my calling. The other is the burgeoning series issued by Ben Weinreb's protege, Ms. Julia Elton, 
and devoted to various aspects of civil engineering. One, for example, deals only with books about bridges. If the footnotes in these catalogues are commendable, there is danger in adding footnotes for footnotes' sake, perhaps in an optimistic attempt to give a catalogue a scholarly appearance. Some years ago, in a catalogue nicknamed in the trade the Telephone Directory, because of its size and format, one Texas bookseller added a totally superfluous footnote to his entry for a copy of the Douay Bible, saying that, quote, although no believer himself, he thought it a great work of literature. <laughs> Franklin Gillum, who's not here tonight, but to whom I'm sure we all send our very best wishes. Franklin Gillum has dubbed this sort of thing the value judgment school of bookselling. One trend of which we have seen too much is the use in footnotes of quotations from the Dictionary of National Biography. So many dealers now follow this easy option that I sometimes suspect that if all the footnotes extracted from the DNB in the course of one year were put together with scissors and paste, the entire 31 volumes of that mighty reference work could be reconstructed. During the period we were reviewing, it's certain that typographical standards in catalogue production have improved dramatically. A number of dealers have employed the very best professional typographers to devise professional, to devise house styles for them. Elkin Matthews went to Reynolds Stone. Other dealers have used John Ryder, whose books, Printing for Pleasure and The Case for Legibility, should, as they say, be in every home. And in the United States, Abe Lerner has designed some quite splendid catalogues for booksellers. The Reynolds Stone design was so successful, by the way, that it was even pirated by one new entrant to the trade who has admitted to me going to his printer and saying, make my catalogue look like one from Elkin Matthews. But whether or not professional designers are employed, the use of word processors, computers, and desktop publishing programs now make it so easy to produce clear print at a reasonable price that the days of barely legible lists run off on aged and badly serviced duplicating machines are surely past us. The benefits are obvious, but for the dealer there can be a snag. Marguerite Cohn of the House of Books in New York dealt in much the same sort of book as the Phoenix bookshop in the same city. Catalogues from Phoenix, I'm sure Bob Wilson wouldn't mind my saying, were smudgy, mimeographed lists with the typewriting crowding the page. While House of Books's catalogues were extremely elegant letterpress booklets. Mrs. Cohn used to complain to me that some collectors thought that her prices must be higher than Phoenix's because she put out catalogues that were obviously expensive to produce. In fact, she said, her prices for the same titles were often lower, that she knew she was losing sales because of her customer's mistaken perception. The new technologies I've just referred to have certainly helped to hold down the cost of printing, though it's still not cheap, but postage costs are also a considerable factor in the economics of book selling. These two considerations between them are bringing changes to the pattern of catalogue distribution. In earlier days, while booksellers eagerly sought new names to put onto their mailing lists, they hardly ever gave attention to taking names off it. Private collectors well, might well remain on the list until their death, even if they made scarcely a single purchase. Libraries were never removed from lists at all. How all that has changed. Today I know of no dealer who does not regularly prune his mailing list, removing from it automatically those who have not ordered for a specific period of time. And nowadays, this weeding out process is applied almost as rigorously to libraries as to private collectors. In the 1980s, I noticed that a number of dealers were trying to meet the escalating cost of distributing catalogues by inviting those who did not order regularly to take out paid subscriptions. This practice never really caught on and seems to have died away now. There were two reasons for this. One was resentment from customers asked to pay the charge. I know of one who replied that it was as though a jeweller, from whom he occasionally bought an expensive present for his wife, had asked him to make a contribution to the cost of the showcase in which the jewellery was displayed. The other reason was that for the booksellers, the game was not really worth the candle. The time taken in administering, in administering subscription schemes was not adequately rewarded by the income they generated. 
What we do still see is the announcement of a cover or published price for a catalogue of which a dealer is especially proud. These catalogues are then sent free to the regular mailing list, of course, and recipients of what might be a notional $10 present are duly grateful. Those with little intent of purchasing, but who write in uh, in order to add a useful reference work to their libraries, are expected to send cash with order. And this stratagem pleases the regular customers, yet provides a useful bonus for the bookseller, and I think it will be with us for some time. I think the propaganda for mint condition in the past few years has gone a bit too far. If this aversion to inferior copies and rebound books is magnified, we will soon come to the point where collectors have nothing to buy and booksellers nothing to sell. Does that quotation perhaps have a familiar and a contemporary ring? It was actually written by the editor of the American Book Collector in 1932 and was amusingly quoted by the Ajala Bookshop of Toronto on the cover of their catalogue number one just last month. It certainly summarises neatly what a number of us have been saying with increasing urgency over the last ten years or so. Booksellers have always preached that it was worth paying a premium to secure a really fine copy. In the field of modern books, some of us also preached to a less than universally responsive audience that it was, in addition, worth paying a premium for a copy in the dust jacket. Now it seems that that campaign has been all too successful, and to try to sell jacketless modern books to today's collectors is like trying to sell whiskey at a Band of Hope convention. Moreover, the jackets that the collectors of today demand must be pristine, and most particularly not price clipped. Now, I can go quite some way with this, whether the jacket is regarded as a useful appendage or an integral part of the book. But I do worry, with the editor of the American Book Collector, whether those who insist on the presence of the jacket in all cases may not end up with gaps on their shelves in perpetuity. Be that as it may, the result is to give us a dichotomy in prices. The finest copies command high figures, copies that lack jackets or that show signs of their age or that have been rebound are now almost impossible to sell. Once upon a time, if appropriately priced, they would have been welcomed by impecunious collectors on the one hand and by university librarians on the other. Now that seems not to be so. The decline in demand for books that are not in the first rank where condition is concerned may well be linked to the decline in library budgets throughout the 1950s and 60s, chiefly because of North America's so-called learning explosion, when every 18-year-old seemed determined to exercise his right to a university education. Every institution of higher education expanded and demonstrated its new stature by building or enlarging its library of rare books. The combined buying power of American universities at that time was the despair of many private collectors who felt that they were being priced out of the market. This was the period when American librarians made buying trips to Europe and pulled book after book from the shelves to make great piles to be shipped back home. This was the time when individual librarians were telephoning dealers and ordering the complete contents of their catalogues. When such great library builders as Harry Ransom, Lawrence Clark Powell, Franklin D. Murphy and Robert Gosper were buying entire preformed collections as though their very lives depended on it. Then things began to change the post-war bulge passed through college, and with smaller enrolments came smaller capitation grants. The mood swung against elitism, and spending tax dollars on rare books and manuscripts seemed a less worthy thing to do. There was disenchantment too after the student unrest on many campuses, and at the same time, inflation was adding to the university's budget problems. Rare books had always been regarded as the icing on the cake, when there was not enough money to buy all the cake that was needed, the icing had to go. To the relief of the bookseller and the delight of the private collector, the latter has gradually taken up much of the slack, and books that would once have been sold to institutional libraries are bought for private collections instead. For the bookseller, this is a mixed blessing. If he makes a private sale, there is always a chance that the book will come onto the market again one day, allowing him a second bite of the cherry. On the other hand, where libraries used to buy 50 or 100 titles at a time, 
the collector more often buys in single volumes. Thus, for the bookseller, the work and expense to achieve a given turnover is very much greater. Now, I do not expect you to shed a tear at that, merely to note what has happened. Over these last few decades, there's been one more encouraging, sorry, one more encouraging development, and it is the tendency of the builders of author collections to adapt a more scholarly approach than their predecessors and to make their collections both broader and deeper. In the 1920s and 30s, collectors used to follow the flag, by which they meant that they allowed an author's nationality to dictate which editions of his works they would buy. Priority of publication left them unmoved. Thus, a collector of, say, John Galsworthy's first editions would buy the English edition of the Foresight Saga, even though the American edition preceded it. Today's collectors take the view that a, a first edition is a first edition, wherever it is published, and faced with the problem of the Foresight Saga, would certainly buy the American edition. Happily, they see the merits in having the English edition too, and revised editions, and the first paperback edition, illustrated editions, translations into foreign languages, and so on, more or less ad infinitum. This has the dual effect of making life more interesting for the booksellers and helping to build very much more satisfactory and rewarding collections. I doff my cap to today's author collection builders. During the second half of the 20th century, book prices increased enormously. That was inevitable, as the price of pretty well everything else increased too, and money values changed dramatically. What would be interesting would be to see which book prices went up fastest and to see how far their pattern of growth deviated from a straight line increase. But I will leave that to be the subject of someone else's Malkin lecture. I will, however, pass on to you an interesting observation made by my friend Hilton Bainton Coward, proprietor of George Bainton, the bookseller and binder in Bath. He said that he found a very rough guide to today's prices could be arrived at by taking the figures at which he first encountered particular books in the early 1950s when he came into the trade, and multiplying them by the number of years that he'd been a bookseller, that's to say 40 times. I invite those of you who are Hilton's contemporaries in mind to make the experiment. Those of you who are younger will have to look up 1950s auction prices to see how well-founded the Bainton theory is. For tonight's purposes, I'm interested in prices only insofar as they affect the running of a bookshop. If you were to posit a hypothetical stock for a bookshop in my field, you might reckon that you would normally like to have on your shelves a set of the yellow book, a copy of the Kelmscott Chaucer, the first edition of Ulysses, and the first edition of Proofrock. Much else as well, of course, but those are enough to serve my point. Add up what it would have cost to buy them in 1950, and then compare that with today's figure. The necessary increase in working capital is quite dramatic and under the tax legislation which has obtained in Britain throughout the half century, I maintain that it would be virtually impossible to fund the increase from retained profits. Which brings us to the subject of the bookseller and the banks. It must be remembered that bookshops are, with very few exceptions, seriously undercapitalized. Their proprietor's insatiable appetite for good stock always outstripping the available cash resources. Enter the bankers. At the midpoint of the century, they were still holding fast to traditional banking practice and making loans only on such security as the deeds of a house or a life insurance policy. Gradually, things changed, and the banks led by those that we call merchant banks, and I believe you call private banks, began to accept as worthwhile security for a loan a bookseller's stock. Indeed, they began to lend against strong balance sheets. Some merchant banks went so far as to set up joint ventures with booksellers, rewarding their extra risk by taking a share of the profits and not just the interest on a loan. I believe the first arrangement of this kind was when Hambrose Bank put up the money for the Robinson Brothers to buy Sir Thomas Phillips' library under just such an arrangement. For some years it happened that my firm had an account at the same bank as Mag's Brothers. I had to suppress a smile when one day I saw the bank manager with whom we had in common sitting next to John Maggs at a Sotheby auction, looking on rather nervously while John bid one million pounds on a single manuscript. 
other involvements between financial institutions and bookshops have gone less well. Bernie Kornfeld's so-called bank is reputed to have lost over £100,000 when one London first edition dealer failed 20 years ago. The city-backed attempt to persuade private buyers to invest in a portfolio of books under the direction of Francis Edwards, balancing their holdings of, say, travel books with uh, perhaps a good run of First World War poetry, never really took off. The attempt to take advantage of the tax benefits of the British government's business expansion scheme, which was to change the small but well-run Primrose Hill bookshop into the publicly owned company through Mackenzie PLC, was hardly a resounding success. The moral is that booksellers and city financiers can work happily together on a rising market, but the backers do not always have the stomach for the long haul when storms blow up and it is necessary to batten down the hatches. As inflation roared away in the second half of the 20th century, a number of investment analysts and financial advisors noted the acceleration in the rate of increase in book prices. This, coupled with uncertainty about the value of money, led people increasingly to put their savings into objects rather than securities, in the hope that the objects would rise in value at least as fast as the money fell. Books were among the objects to which some investors turned their attention. Some dealers, creditably few, I'm glad to say, fell upon the necks of these investors and told them that rare books were the best thing since sliced bread. They suggested that book prices could only go up. These were, of course, booksellers who'd heard nothing or remembered nothing about the crash in book prices in the 1930s. It's true that the situation then was rather different. Prices had been driven up far beyond the levels that were firmly supported by their significance and rarity. Nowadays, prices may be high, but they're more soundly based. For the most part, the book trade took a conservative line. The Antiquarian Booksellers Association in Great Britain issued a cautionary statement. The best position can probably be summed up as follows. Prices of good books, carefully purchased, have certainly appreciated, and there is room for them to go further. Nevertheless, books are not the best medium for investment. With prices as high as they are, it is reasonable to ask advice about eventual resale value. But the best reason to purchase a book is because you like it. Should it happen to go up in value, that's a bonus. Doubtless there will continue to be an, an amount of investment buying. The danger comes when investors, a different breed from true book collectors, all seek to unload on the same day, the day when the market turns down. I really doubt whether investment buying is a significant factor in more than a very few book selling businesses, and I certainly hope that things stay that way. What about auctions? Well, the auction scene has changed enormously since I first bid on my firm's account at Hodgson's Rooms in Chancery Lane in the mid-1950s. Except on lots of quite outstanding merit, bidding rose in two shilling increments in those days, which would be about 40 cents at that time, I think. I got so excited that I actually bid against myself, something that Wilfred Hodgson pointed out from the rostrum in a very gentle manner. It was then the custom at Hodgson's and even at Sotheby's for books lotted together to be tied in bundles with ordinary string, usually with a small circular label bearing the lot number stuck to the upper cover of the topmost book. All too often the string damaged the edges of the books on the outside of the bundle, which would consequently have to be described in catalogues as string marked. Doubtless there are still auction houses where string and sticky labels are used, Thank goodness they are few and far between. They were banished from Sotheby's only on the intervention of John Carter when that worthy joined the firm. And string marked is a, no longer a cataloguing term that neophytes have to learn. In the mid-1950s, the auction houses were very largely wholesalers. They sold books in quite large lots, and most of their buyers were dealers who would divide the lots up and sell them to collectors and librarians volume by volume. Today, the major auction houses go to great lengths to woo the private buyer. They employ powerful publicity and public relations machines. And indeed, it's rare to open any glossy magazine without finding a story or picture which equates social and personal success with appearance at a Sotheby or Christie sale. 
the auctioneer's publicity has been so successful that there is now an alarming tendency for all the best collections to go for auction when the time for them to be sold comes around. Fewer and fewer private libraries are in consequence offered to bookshops. The auctioneers sometimes argue that the changes they have wrought are to the benefit of everyone. They say they have created many new customers for booksellers and have moved prices upwards to mutual advantage. Prices have gone up, of course, because auctioneers' estimates tend to become self-fulfilling prophecies, especially when the bidders are not hard-headed dealers, but collectors who are relative tyros. And speaking of estimates, in the London auction houses, publishing them in advance is a relatively new departure. Estimates for specific lots were always available on request, but they used, at least at Sotheby's, to be given on an ad hoc basis, and the figures you got depended on who you asked. At some time in the 1960s, Sotheby's began to prepare formal lists for internal use, to be referred to by auction house staff when inquiries were received. But it was not until the 1975-76 auction season that estimates were adopting what is now this normal practice. Printed estimates and facilities for bidding by telephone are just two of the ways in which the auctioneers have courted the private buyer. That auctioneers have found new markets may be good, but my fear is that the new prices run the risk of making book collecting a hobby that only the rich can afford. Two last thoughts about auctions. The first concerns the buyer's premium. One has to admire the ingenuity with which the auctioneers devised a system where they charge both buyer and seller for the same transaction. Then is there perhaps a sign that auctioneers are moving back at last towards their wholesale role? Certainly one of the first things Roy Davids did when he became head of Sotheby's book department in London was to reduce the number of sales and to increase the size of the lots, at least in those sales dedicated to general books. I've never been one to hold back from stating the obvious, and I don't see why tonight should be any exception. Technological changes which have affected every other walk of life have, of course, changed the face of bookselling too. Consider what the jet engine has done for the pattern of trade in bookshops, not just in London, but elsewhere. Before the Second World War, and even after it, well on into the period which we are now considering, many American booksellers came to London every summer. They began to arrive in June, and by Labor Day, they were all gone. They included many of the great American dealers, making wholesale purchases to restock their shelves. And incidentally, it was a pattern of economic life that many of those dealers bought on long credit, paying for one year's purchases only shortly before the next year's trip. Well, the advent of large jet aircraft cutting down journey times and keeping the cost of air travel, particularly of transatlantic air travel, low in real terms, has meant that Britain's bookshops now see American buyers from January right through until December. Of course, we also see buyers from other parts of the world, from uh, Canada, from Europe, from Japan, and from Australia too. What is more, British booksellers, as buyers, themselves make journeys abroad more frequently. This increased mobility has contributed to the success, the international success of book fairs with the effects we've already considered. Direct dialing on international telephone routes, which for me came into its own during Britain's nine-week postal strike in 1971, has also done much to bring buyers and sellers of books all the world over into one more compact marketplace. The advent of the fax machine, allowing offers of books together with reproductions of title pages, of illustrations, photographs of bindings and so on, to be flashed across the world in seconds, has reinforced that effect. When collectors and librarians can travel the world more easily, when booksellers can visit one another's shops, when pushing a few buttons can connect you with a customer or a supplier on the other side of the world, when a complex catalogue description can be dispatched, and an order received within five minutes, we are moving much closer to the economist's ideal of a perfect market, and certainly to something close to a mid-Atlantic or even a world price for a book, rather than a British price, an American price, and a Japanese price for the same work. Where do we stand today? In the United Kingdom and the United States, confidence is finally returning to the book trade at the end of a long recession. On the continent of Europe, the mood is not so good. Political and economic worries beset our friends in Japan, 
Moreover, rare books are getting scarce, as the old chestnut had it. Nevertheless, interest in the history of the book has never been greater. Computers do more and more for us. One firm in England even offers to save me the trouble of reading auction catalogues. It will have its computers do the job for me. All I have to do is give a list of authors and titles, and the computer will send me full details by fax when any of the relevant books are due to come under the hammer. Where will we be in the year 2000? Professor Bellinger has taken an austere view of the future in his essay, Meditations by the Captain of the Iceberg. He argues convincingly that the spending priorities of learned libraries will be computers and conservation rather than acquisitions. I cannot argue with that. For my part, I'm sure that it will become the norm for new bibliographies to be online so that they can be regularly updated. Electronic matching of customers' wants against booksellers' stock will become increasingly common, although that will still be a very poor way to buy a Gutenberg Bible. As the world descends yet further into tribalism, look at Yugoslavia, look at Czechoslovakia, export regulations will become more onerous, making it harder to trade in books and manuscripts across international frontiers. The number of small specialist firms will continue to grow, while the giant firms such as Quaritch, Heritage and Yoshodo flourish at the other end of the scale. There will be continuing pressure on the medium-sized firms in between. Your average antiquarian bookseller is, like the collectors and librarians he seeks to serve, a conservative creature. He does not take readily to change, yet he is willy-nilly caught up in the changes that beset us now. If he does not welcome them, he must still learn to adapt to them if he is to flourish. I'm encouraged by history. The antiquarian trade has coped with change for many centuries now, and I do not seriously doubt for one moment that it will continue to do so. Thank you.